Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our uh, passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. And let's begin by reading the passage together again. That's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. And the Apostle Paul writes this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. <clears throat> one of the most famous hymns ever written emerges from one of the greatest conversion stories ever told. I'm speaking, of course, about the hymn Amazing Grace and its author, John Newton. It's a hymn so famous that I'd imagine most of you, if not all of you, can rattle off the opening line with hardly a second thought. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. There has perhaps never been written a more succinct and accurate description of the experience of conversion than what you find in those four lines right there. It's a large part of why the song is so famous. Newton describes in four simple lines an, an experience, a feeling that every truly born-again Christian can identify with. It's easy to wonder what sort of profound conversion experience might inspire a man to write such a verse. And as one digs into the life of John Newton, they're not disappointed. At this point in history, Newton's conversion story is nearly as famous as the hymn itself. I'd imagine you've already heard it before. Born in 1825 to a British sea captain, Newton began his life as a sailor at the age of 11. At 18, he was pressed into service as a midshipman aboard the HMS Harwich. At 20... He proved so disobedient and headstrong that he was transferred to a ship called the Pegasus in exchange for crew. The Pegasus was a ship that carried goods to Africa in exchange for slaves. And thus began Newton's career in the slaving business. A business wasn't very good at first. Ever the incorrigible libertine, as Newton would later describe himself, he soon found himself at, odd, at odds with the captain of the Pegasus until finally the captain gave Newton to his wife to be used with as she saw fit. His wife treated Newton cruelly. His clothes soon turned to rags, and Newton was often forced to beg for food. Newton was eventually even enslaved himself and forced to work on a plantation. Until one day a ship showed up by the name of the Greyhound. The ship was commanded by a captain sent by his father to find Newton after Newton had written describing his conditions. 
Newton was transferred to the ship, and he was soon headed back home to England. On the way home, an event transpired that would forever change Newton's life. As the ship drew near to England, it encountered an incredibly violent storm. At one point, a crew member was swept overboard who was standing in the exact spot that Newton had been standing not moments earlier. Crew, Newton included, furiously worked the ship's pump in an effort to bail out the ship. Newton and another sailor even went so far as to tie themselves to the pump to continue working on it without being swept overboard. Finally, exhausted and unable to bail any longer, Newton was stationed at the ship's helm, where he was again tied down to the ship and where he spent the next 11 hours trying to steer the ship through the storm. While he stood there at the helm, Newton spent time reflecting on Thomas Akempis' imitation of Christ, which he had been reading in the weeks leading up to the storm. And as he reflected on his life, he recalled a passage from Proverbs, Proverbs 21, or, uh, uh, Proverbs 1, rather, verses 24 through 27, which reads, Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Newton recognized that that verse described him. His mother had taught him the scriptures when he was young. And she prayed that he might become a minister. But Newton had so thoroughly rejected that course that he was known by his fellow sailors as the great blasphemer. And now here he was, literally in the storm, and he did not believe that if he called out to God, that God would hear him. Of course, Newton would be delivered from the storm, and he would later claim, quote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of the deep waters. That's a fascinating story to ponder. And we, I think we would like to think that this is where the story ends. I think for those of, of us who've heard this story before, this is the image of Newton that we'd like to have in our mind. We sing this line, I was blind, but now I see. And we picture this spiritual epiphany when the headstrong, blasphemous slaver suddenly realized the grace that's offered in Christ and instantly walked away from his life of sin, never to return to it again. He instantly gives up the slave trade, he cleans up his language and his blasphemy, and he suddenly becomes a model of Christian virtue. The truth, however, is far messier than this. The fact is, Newton actually continued to work in the slave trade for several years after this. Yes, he cleaned up his language, stopped his gambling, even developed a measure of sympathy for the slaves that he carried. But he couldn't find himself to walk in, away from the slave trade right away. In fact, it wasn't until a full six years after the storm that produced his spiritual crisis that Newton finally stopped carrying slaves. And that, in part, only after he suffered a seizure that made him physically unable to sail any longer. He continued to invest in slaving operations even then. Now, this isn't to detract from Newton's work as an abolitionist. He would eventually go on to fully renounce the slave trade and work to see it put to an end. But it should be noted that Newton didn't begin to actively speak out against the slave trade until a full 40 years after his initial religious experience. In other words, this wasn't an immediate transformation. It took some time. Indeed, even John Newton's conversion wasn't as immediate as we might like to think it. We'd like to think he was converted during this dramatic moment in the middle of the storm. However, in explaining the event, Newton would write several years later that even after this quote, I was greatly deficient in many respects. I cannot, my consider, I cannot consider myself to have become a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. Newton could pen the line, I was blind, but now I see. But what we discover as we look into his life is that for him, 
This transformation was less like the blind man of John 9, who was transformed instantly and who could testify regarding Jesus. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And instead, Newton's conversion was more like the blind man of Mark 8, whose vision was restored first partially and then fully over the course of two separate touches by Christ. Of course, my point here this morning is not to imply that the act we call regeneration is not instantaneous. It most certainly is. A person is either spiritually dead or they're spiritually alive. There is no in-between. And spiritual life occurs when they receive the Holy Spirit. Rather, my point is that even though the Christian's regeneration is instant, their growth into Christ's likeness is most definitely not. The corpse might have been brought back to life, but that doesn't mean it necessarily is healed just yet either. It's not like the patient is immediately jumping out of bed and off to run a marathon. No, there's going to be, you know, they're going to be on life support for a while. There's going to be months and even years of rehab before they'll even get close to functioning like a normal human being again. And in truth, they may never fully recover. In fact, the scripture tells us that they will not fully recover, at least not this side of heaven. No, they're alive, but it's very much in a diminished capacity. There's some injuries that they'll carry with them for the rest of their life. This concept can make it incredibly difficult to know what to do at times with sin in the body of Christ. As Christians, we believe that growth and righteousness is something that takes place Progressively, over time, we're not under any illusion that we're without sin. In fact, our entire belief system is built on the idea that not only are we sinners, but that there's nothing we can do to free ourselves of this condition on our own. We're completely dependent on the mercy of God to redeem us from both the penalty and the power of sin. This, in turn, means that we should tend to come with an attitude of grace and patience towards those caught in sin in the body of Christ. We don't come demanding perfection from our brothers and sisters since we know that we're all a work in progress. Still, are there any limits to this grace? Is there ever a moment when a church is actually too patient with sin? This is a question that we're asking as we explore Paul's response to sin in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This isn't an easy question to answer. On the one hand, I think we understand that there are no limits to grace. Christ's sacrifice is completely sufficient to cover all sin. And yet I think we also realize that something doesn't quite feel right about saying that Christians can just go around and sin with impunity since Christ's sacrifice is completely sufficient to cover all our sin. So what's the answer here? What should the church do when it discovers sin among one of its members? How should the church respond to sin in the body of Christ? So far, Paul has shown us the attitude that we're to respond with, and that's with mourning, not arrogance, or even boasting over such sin. I really think this is so key. The right application of grace in the body of Christ has less to do with the presence or absence of sin in the body and more to do with our attitude towards this sin more than anything else. Basically, the way we think about sin and the emotions that flow out of this perspective are what is really going to shape our actions, what are really going to shape our response. And what Paul says here is that we should respond to known sin in the body of Christ with mourning and sorrow, not arrogant boasting. Arrogant boasting, you, you will recall, was the Corinthian response to sin in the body. We learned last week that Paul has received this report from Corinth that there is a church member engaged in an act of sexual sin so heinous that not even the genuine, generally promiscuous pagans of the surrounding culture would have approved of this man's conduct. He was living with his stepmother. And rather than do anything about it, 
the Corinthians are actually boasting over his conduct. Paul rebukes them over this attitude in verses 1 and 2. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Are you not arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? There are a number of ways that mourning is an appropriate response to sin in the body of Christ. Sin, of course, dishonors God. It's even the reason why Christ suffered on the cross. He suffered to die the penalty for our sins. This means that if we have any affection for God, which we really should have if we believe in the gospel, then we should mourn over our sin because of the quote-unquote, I want to use this term cautiously here, but because of the quote-unquote harm that it inflicts on God. In short, our sin should still bother us because regardless of whether or not we ever feel the consequences for our sin, there are still consequences nonetheless, which are borne not by us, but at the very least by the God whom we love. In dishonoring God, sin also distorts our proclamation of the gospel. It undermines the good news we mean to proclaim to the world, meaning there's a sense in which you could say that sin in the church indirectly contributes to the eternal suffering of the lost. That would be a reason to mourn over sin. Our sin also typically does real harm to other people, be it physically or emotionally or materially. Meaning when I lash out in sinful anger against a loved one or when I steal from my employer, there's a real kind of loss or pain that they experience because of my sin. That would be a reason for mourning over our sin. So if we love other people, there's going to be mourning that occurs over sin in the church because of the pain that the church is inflicting, either temporally or eternally, on others as a result of their sin. In fact, take the sinner's impact on others out of the equation. When you see sin in the life of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, your love for them, the sinner, should cause you to mourn because sin really is bad for them. As James says, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the result of sin. So I should really mourn over sin in the body of Christ because of all the pain that it's causing my fellow brothers and sisters. Again, there are really a number of different reasons why we should mourn over sin. However, there's one particular reason that Paul has in mind here when he writes this passage. And that's the consequences that the sinner will experience from God on account of their sin. Again, I brought this out last week. I said that the arrogant mourn contrast that we see here is a contrast that we see in other portions of Scripture when dealing with those who think that they're beyond the reach of God's correction. They're told they need to humble themselves and mourn over their condition since if they don't turn, then God will discipline them for their sin. I further explain that in these passages, we discover that God often performs this discipline with His people specifically, not in spite of His love for them or in spite of the relationship He enjoys with them, but rather because of it. Essentially, it goes back to these ideas that I mentioned ago. Sin both dishonors God and it harms the sinner. And so both as an expression of zeal for his name and as an expression of love for his people, God refuses to tolerate sin in their midst. Instead, he corrects it. In other words, when we ask these questions, are there any limits to grace within the church? Is there ever a moment when the church is too patient with sin? we're actually very subtly creating a kind of false dilemma. We're implying that grace always means patience towards sin. And so we can either be gracious or establish boundaries for conduct in the church when, in fact, those two concepts, grace and boundaries, are not opposed to each other. The idea of boundaries are only opposed to the concept of grace when we believe that sin is really good for us. When, however, we understand sin in the way that God understands it, 
which is to say when we understand it to be actually bad for the sinner, then the concept of boundaries isn't inherently opposed to the concept of grace. Rather, the enforcement of boundaries can actually be an expression of grace. That's what we see with God and His people, as it says in Hebrews 12, 11, regarding the discipline of God. It says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. This is what God is after when He disciplines His people. He's not meaning to crush their joy. He's meaning to increase it. And in this sense, His discipline is not contrary to His grace, but rather an expression of it. As I pointed out last week, and as I'm going to continue to explain this week, this is true not just of sinners individually, but of the entire body corporately. When the body of Christ stands by and refuses to love both the glory of God and the good of its members enough to correct sin, then God will actually correct the body for their sin in refusing to correct sin, if that makes sense. The whole body will suffer for it. And so what this means is that one of the ways that grace is expressed in the body is not with an attitude of indifference or even approbation of the sin that exists among its members. Rather, it has an attitude of sorrow and lament. God's grace is expressed with deliverance from sin in all its forms with respect to both the penalty and the power of sin. And so when sin exists in the body, the church mourns the fact that it has fallen short of God's grace. And so far from delighting in this sin, it laments its presence and seeks to see it removed. Again, they do this not only out of a love for God, and not only even as an expression of love towards the sinner, but also even because of the pain that this individual's sin is going to bring upon the body if it's not dealt with. So what should the church do when it discovers sin among one of its members? How should the church respond to sin in the body of Christ? Again, already we've seen the attitude, and that's mourning, not arrogance. What actions then emerge from this attitude? The first one is this. If you're keeping notes from last week, this is the second response that we see outlined in this passage but it's the first one that you can describe as an action, and that's removal, not association. The church should remove itself from the offending brother or sister in Christ. And I know I said last week that we'd cover both actions today, but this is actually going to be the only action that we're going to cover today, removal, not association. We see this starting at the end of verse 2 all the way through the end of verse 8. Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I should probably note at this point, that the sin we're dealing with in this passage is both known and unrepentant. Meaning, part of what Paul is taking issue with here is that this man is persisting in this state of cohabitation with his stepmother. He's persisting in it. And the church knows about it. That's important to understanding this action. The reason why the church's knowledge of this sin will, I think, become apparent uh, in, in just a moment why that's important. But the unrepentant part is especially important as well. 
We ask these questions. Are there any limits to grace within the church? Is there ever a moment when the church is actually too patient with sin? And if we're talking about this notion of removal, of disassociation with the sinner, then the answer is no, so long as the sinner is repentant. Jesus makes this point blatantly clear in Matthew 18 when he follows up his instructions for church discipline with the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I want to make this clear up front. The context here is important. The situation that Paul is dealing with is one with a known unrepentant sin. So when we say that disassociation from the sinner is the appropriate response to sin in the body of Christ, this is the kind of sin that we're talking about. We should not seek to disassociate ourselves from those trying to overcome uh, those trying to overcome their sin, only those who are resigned to it. Now the question that I think arises at this point is, why? Why is separation from the sinning member the appropriate response to this type of sin? I mean, think about it here for a minute. I pointed out towards the end of last week's message that Paul actually addresses the church in this passage, not the man committing the sin. His rebuke is aimed at them, the church, not him. He says, you are arrogant. Your boasting is not good. That's the thing that he's really taking issue with here. It's less the man's sin and more the church's refusal to correct it. This even seems to be who will be the recipients of the correction that Paul's threatening towards the end of chapter 4. He's going to bring the rod and discipline the church for their arrogance not the man for his sin. Why is that? Why is the church responsible to correct this man's sin? You ever stop to think about that? We sort of take it for granted today that the church should correct its sinning members. But why? Why should I care whether or not other Christians are engaged in sin. My relationship with the Lord is okay. I mean, you could say, well, because love, right? If you, if you love your brothers and sisters, you'll correct them because their sin is bad for them. And I think we could all understand where that's going, but even still, that doesn't really explain why I am accountable for their sin to the degree that I would be effectively getting disciplined, not because of any sin that I've done, but on account of their sin for my refusal to correct it. You understand the Corinthians, they haven't done anything. This man has sinned, and Paul is saying, if you don't do anything about this, then God will discipline you. Wait a second. Why are they accountable for his sin at that level? This is a question that we should probably be asking ourselves right about now. But say we were to, we were to take for granted that we are responsible. And even then, you know, why is separation the appropriate response to sin in this scenario. Again, you could look in this passage and find at least part of the answer to that question. I mean, what does Paul say in verse 5, right? He gives us at least part of the reason why he advocates for this separation when he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that's at least one reason to advocate separation. It's because it effectively disciplines the individual through the destruction of the flesh. Now, there, there's really a lot to chew on there, I think, about how separation does that. I mean, how does separation accomplish this? What does Paul mean by the destruction of the flesh? And what role does Satan have to play in that? And how does separation grant him the ability to do that? There are just a lot of questions that are surrounding this assertion from Paul. But even assuming we have answers to all of that, think about it. You go back to the Old Testament. And God offers other kinds of corrections for this type of sin. Other forms of correction other than separation. There's financial restitution, for instance. There's various forms of corporal punishment. Even death. I know it probably sounds crazy for me to even pose this question, but again, really think about it. 
Why does God command death for this sort of sin in the Old Testament? And here he only commands separation. Why the change? You could say, well, this is more loving than death. It's more gracious, but not only does that seem to imply that God's character has somehow changed from one instance to the next. You know, the classic, the God of the Old Testament is a just God, whereas the God of the New Testament is a loving God, that kind of a fallacy. But I also think it tends to misunderstand the significance of separation and its impact. If I could put it this way, the Scripture commands parents to discipline their children with the rod. Basically, it commands some form of corporal punishment, spanking, for instance, instead of what many people would consider to be the more humane form of punishment expressed in grounding or the proverbial timeout. And without getting into the details here today, I'd argue that at least one of the reasons why it does this is because grounding actually does a deeper and more permanent kind of damage to the child than spanking. And it does this on a spiritual level. This is one of the reasons why the Bible tends to advocate for corporal punishment in many instances. It's actually one of the more humane types of punishment there is. It takes the human soul into account, and it treats us as more than just material beings. And when performed equitably, it actually does a more effective job at preserving the integrity of the soul and separation. So even if the scriptures weren't advocating for death in this scenario, then why aren't they at least advocating for some type of corporal punishment instead of separation? I think there are three answers that we could provide to this question, all of which have to do with the nature of the church itself, essentially what the body is. The first reason doesn't come from this passage. Uh, we find it rather in the rest of Paul's letters, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this point, but I think it's worth at least mentioning here in passing. And that reason is because the church is a supranational entity, not a national one. Meaning the church is a body that spans across nations. It is not in and of itself what we would call a nation state. Of course, we're talking about this concept a little bit right now in Sunday school class. We'll actually cover this uh, a bit more in depth in just a, a, not even just a few weeks. Next week, we'll get into this quite a bit. Uh, but last week, when we talked about government, we said that uh, government is a kind of legal force, meaning it possesses the authority to enforce compliance with a certain set of laws. We, we see this, this authority expressed all the way up and down human society. But what's interesting is with these different types of government, uh, God equips them with different types of force. And the power to exercise corporal punishment, what we would tend to call the power of the sword, God bestows that kind of power to the state, not the church. Again, we'll get there uh, really next week, but God gives the church what we call the power of the keys, which is a reference to Matthew 18. Basically, church government has the power to include or exclude individuals from the covenant community, a power which the state actually does not possess. And conversely, the state has the power to wield the sword, which is the power to punish evildoers for their sin, which is a power that the church does not possess. That was different in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the covenant community under the Mosaic Covenant was synonymous with the nation state of Israel. And so in a sense, there was no separation between what we would call the church and the state. The church and the state were one. So there was no separation of power between the sword and the keys under that administration. And this meant that corporal punishment was very much on the table and directed by God for those kinds of sins. It doesn't work that way under the current administration as God's covenant people are scattered out among the nations. And so instead, the church is empowered only with the authority to define who belongs to this covenant community. This is one reason why God would command separation in this instance instead of these other types of responses. Now, again, you don't see this come out in this passage, but I point it out because that concept is working in the background for Paul as he writes. In fact, we'll see it come up to the surface just a few weeks from now as Paul continues to address these kinds of issues in 1 Corinthians 6. 
We'll see him get into this issue of the church and the state and its relationship to one another. The next two reasons do come from this passage. And if you recall, I said last week that there are some very challenging and interesting elements that come up in this text, and this is what I was talking about. It comes out of these next two reasons. Reason number two, God commands separation because the church is a corporate entity. Because the church is a corporate entity. So it's not just a supranational entity. It's also a corporate entity. In other words, if you're wondering why the church is accountable for the sins of its members, this is why. It's because in God's eyes, the church is not merely a bunch of individuals who are all responsible for their own sin. Rather, it's because he instead sees the church as a corporate entity of which every member belongs, of which every member is a part. Again, this is somewhat running in the background. Paul talks about this concept in several other passages in the New Testament, some of which I referred to just a couple of weeks ago as we discussed the significance of our being able to meet together once again. Uh, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, for instance, he talks about presenting our bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice to God, singular. Um, in Ephesians 2, he refers to both Jew and Gentiles alike being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In fact, it's the same image, this image of temple, uh, that Paul referred to just a couple of chapters back when he asked in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. As I noted back when we were in that passage, the you in that statement is plural. He's not referring to each individual Christian separately as a temple of God. He's referring to the entire church as the temple of God, which is indwelt by the one Spirit of God. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, the imagery shifts to that of a body and of each of the individuals, uh, individual members within that body uh, being a member of the body, basically body parts. So there's some kind of distinction clearly, right? The foot is not the same thing as the eye as Paul will explain in 1 Corinthians 12. And yet they're all still members of the one body. So this kind of understanding of the church seems to be constantly running in the background of Paul's thinking. But this isn't only background material. You actually begin to see it emerge right here in this passage when Paul says, verses 3 through 5, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the part of the passage that I've been really wrestling with over the past few weeks. What's Paul saying here when he talks about being present in spirit? Does he mean that in a merely figurative sense? You know, sort of like when we tell someone else, I have you in my thoughts. Sometimes there's a kind of presence that can occur when we think of someone in our mind. Is he, is he aiming for that? It almost seems like it in verse 3. And he talks about uh, having already pronounced judgment of the man as if present. That seems to be implying that his presence isn't real. It's figurative. And yet in verse 4, the figurative elements in this statement drop off. He instead speaks of, uh, again of his spirit being present with them. And interestingly enough, he implies that this will happen when they're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. As if this presence, this is a, this is a presence that uniquely occurs when the church is assembled. Now, just so you know, this is a... Uh, incredibly difficult section of Scripture to translate. Uh, the way Paul phrases this, it's very hard to discern what phrases are describing what in this passage. Uh, you take this phrase, in the name of the Lord, for instance, and there's a le legitimate case that to be made that it is actually meant to describe the authority of Paul's judgment. He's pronouncing his judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could also refer to the high-handedness of this man's sin. Basically, the end of verse 3 could read, 
the one who did such a thing in the name of the Lord Jesus? Meaning it's part of his boasting. He's not just living with his stepmother, but he's doing it in the name of Christ. Or it could be used in the way that the ESV renders it here as a reference to Christian assembly. They're assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus. There are really strong cases that could be made for any of these positions. And if you can't tell, depending on where that phrase goes, it's going to mean very different things. And that's not even the only difficult phrase in this passage. There are probably three different ways that we could read this phrase with the power of the Lord Jesus as well. It's just a very, very difficult passage to translate. And in a couple of weeks, I want us to come back to this passage to explore this particular section of the text together with a little more depth. And when we get there, I'm going to try to explain to you the positions that I hold for this text and why I hold them and the implications of those. But suffice to say for the moment, however you translate this verse, what can't be denied is that Paul envisions a very real union with the Corinthian church in spite of his distance in Ephesus. This is a union that seems to be uniquely expressed when the church is assembled. And it's on the basis of this union that Paul believes that he can make this judgment. I mean, do you see that? He, whether this phrase, in the name of the Lord, is referring to the authority of Paul's judgment or the nature of the church's assembly, either way, it's apparent that Paul is exercising apostolic authority here, and he believes that he's able to exercise this authority all the way from Ephesus, as if present, the next time the church assembles, because although his body is absent, his spirit will still be very much present. That's where he gets off saying that he can exercise this kind of authority in the church, even though he's so far away. Now, if you're like me, you're really curious about how all that works. And like I said last week, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks after we wrap our discussion of the main point Paul is getting at in this passage. But regardless of how it works, what I think we can say fairly definitively is that Paul understands himself to be in a very real kind of union with this church. Even further, regardless of all the specifics of how this works, I think we can also say definitively that this union occurs through the union that all Christians enjoy with Christ, through the Holy Spirit. In case you don't understand what I mean here, if I could put it this way, the reason why Christians aren't punished for their sin is because when they believe, they enjoy a very real kind of union with Christ. You sometimes heard it said, for instance, that if the gospel is true, then the Christian's God is unjust since he punishes the innocent and allows the guilty to go free. We would never call this justice in our own legal system. Even if someone volunteered for it, we would never consider it just for the innocent to bear the sins of the wicked. No, the wicked do the crime, so justice demands that they serve the time. The thing is, that's not exactly what Christians believe, that God punishes the innocent instead of the wicked. Yes, Jesus was innocent. And when he died, he suffered the penalty for our sins, not his. But that's not really the same thing as saying that God punishes the innocent instead of the wicked because of this notion of union with Christ. Now, obviously, I lack the time to substantiate all this from Scripture here this morning, but if I could explain it this way, when a husband and wife marry, their bank accounts are joined into one. Meaning if the wife is in debt before marriage and her husband is rich, then the wife becomes rich by virtue of her husband's riches. If the husband's riches exceed her debt, then her riches, his riches uh, wipe out her debt, and so instead of being poor, she's actually become rich. It doesn't mean that the debt was ignored. It means that the husband paid for it. And so now, by virtue of their union in marriage, she actually is rich. So it is with Christ and His church. 
Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, he incurred a debt before God. When Christ became a man, he joined himself to that debt. He was not the one who racked up the debt, but by virtue of his incarnation, he became really and actually responsible for it. He not only paid for that debt on the cross, but through his perfect obedience, he is actually rich in God's eyes. And so now, whenever a person unites themselves to Christ by faith, they inherit his riches. It's not a case of God unjustly punishing one man in place of the other. It's a case of a man legally assuming the debt of another and paying for it. And what are the mechanics of this union? How does this union form? It's not only by faith. Faith merely describes the action a person takes in order to become a part of this union. But in terms of what you might call the actual mechanism that makes this union real, this occurs through the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers when they believe. Meaning, it's not merely a figurative union we enjoy with Christ, but a real one which we enjoy as we're indwelt by the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is getting at when he talks about being present in spirit, though absent. The way this can work is because even though he's physically absent, he's still united to the Corinthians by the one Holy Spirit who inhabits the entire church simultaneously. Now, are you guys tracking with me so far? You got me so far? I know this can get sort of deep here, and I have to warn you, it's about to get deeper. Um, but I really want you to stick with me because I think this is all about to come together. And I think when you see the big picture, honestly, uh, it has the potential to send chills down your spine. I know it does mine. Um, this is the kind of doctrine that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Uh, so maybe take a moment, come up for air, right? Breathe <laughs> and get ready because we've got to go down one more time. Uh, but stick with me. I think the payoff's going to be worth it. So to recap, I think we can safely say that this is what Paul has in mind here when he writes this. He's thinking about this corporate identity that the church shares, which it shares by virtue of the union that we enjoy with Christ through the Spirit. And the reason that this matters is because of the third reason why he exhorts the church to separate. And that's because the church is a holy entity. So it's a supranational entity, it's a corporate entity, and finally it's a holy entity. You see this come out in verses 6 through 8. This is really where Paul most clearly articulates the reason for separation. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I tell you, this is a fascinating section of this passage. I think a lot of times when we think of the purpose of church discipline, we think of Matthew 18, of course. In Jesus' introduction to that passage, as he talks about the shepherd leaving the 99 to rescue the one, we think of the statement that he makes to describe step one of that process. He says, if your brother listens to you, you've gained your brother. And in this light, it seems like the primary purpose of church discipline is the restoration of the brother. Meaning the reason why we do it is for the brother. The goal we have in mind is his good. I know I've certainly taught this kind of emphasis before as I've taught on church discipline. And again, I, I, we even get to see this purpose emerge again here in verse 5 when he says that they're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So I'm not denying that purpose. But while that may be the primary purpose of church discipline, what we discover here is that it's not the only purpose. If you look at the reasoning that Paul provides for separation here, it actually has less to do with the restoration or preservation of the brother and more to do with the restoration or preservation of the church. He goes to this image of the Passover and he recalls this part of the celebration wherein the families would all remove the leaven from their homes. And he equates the church with that unleavened bread. 
And I think if you're paying attention here, it's likely it isn't only the Passover celebration that Paul has in mind when he draws this comparison. I think he even has the Christian celebration of that meal, which forever changed their understanding of the meaning of that event in mind. And I'm talking, of course, about the Lord's table. And there are a few reasons why I say this, which I'll try to explain again in greater detail in just a couple of weeks here. But at the very least, I think we can probably say that this is why he turns to this image in this scenario. In other words, what is it that inspired Paul to make this comparison in this specific situation? What gives him the license to draw a comparison between something so seemingly disconnected as the church and the unleavened bread of the Passover? Well, it's the regular celebration of this meal that parallels the Passover in the life of the church. That's the Lord's table. In fact, later in this same letter, We'll even see Paul bring up the Lord's table again. It's actually going to become a major topic of discussion. And in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, he again makes this comparison between the church and the bread. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That passage is significant, by the way, because it captures this idea of participation, that when we gather around the table, we participate together in the body and blood of the Lord. And if this meal is the inspiration for what Paul says here, I think this really opens up this passage on a number of different levels. So again, I think this is the event that he has in mind here, not just the Passover itself, but the Christian commemoration of that event, the Lord's table, and what he's trying to communicate clearly is that that event in the life of the church and and the fact that the bread in this event is unleavened, that that event should remind the Christian of the fact that they have been set apart as holy. Now, regardless of whether or not that's Paul's inspiration, the point is still largely the same. At the very least, Paul is making a comparison between the church and the bread. And he's saying that by allowing this man to participate in the body, The church is allowing him to leaven the church. I feel like this can be a little confusing for us because we're not steeped in this notion of ceremonial holiness in the same way that the Jew of the Old Testament is. I bet you think, for instance, that when Paul is talking about this idea of leavening, that you think he's referring to the influence of this man. You think that he's saying that If the sin isn't addressed and corrected, then the church is going to be encouraged to participate in this sin as well. In short, their boasting, their arrogance over this sin will encourage further sin of a high hand. But while that may be true, that that would be the result of sin if it's not addressed, that's not the issue that Paul has in mind here when he says this. Rather, if you can think of the uncleanness laws, for instance... And how contact with a dead animal contaminated the one who touched it and made them unfit to dwell in the presence of God without a covering for their sin. I mean, the scripture actually calls contact with dead animals sin. If you can think of that, then you can get a sense of what Paul is meaning here with this notion of leaven. Or if I could use a more contemporary analogy... Suppose you have a peanut allergy. How many peanuts are you allowed to have in your food before it becomes unacceptable to eat? The answer is none, right? Any peanuts make it completely unacceptable. That is what Paul is talking about here with a little leaven leavening the whole lump. The church is to be unleavened. So how much leaven is allowed in a piece of bread before it's no longer considered unleavened? The answer is any leaven whatsoever, right? The very definition of unleavened is that there is no leaven in it. So even a smidgen of leaven in it means that now this bread is leavened, not unleavened. So why is that a problem? I'll distill it down for you in one word, one name actually. Achan. You guys remember Achan, don't you? 
Israel defeats Jericho. God tells Israel that they're to keep none of the spoil from the victory. One man disobeys in all of Israel. Only one man disobeys, a man by the name of Achan. And who suffers for it? All of Israel. In the very next battle, the nation is routed by the tiny city of Ai because the Lord turned against Israel and refused to fight for them because of the one man's sin. The one piece of leaven leavened the whole lump. Friends, Paul tells us later in chapter 10 that these things were written for our instruction so that we might learn not to desire evil as they did. We're supposed to learn from the sin of Achan. And this is what it teaches us. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If that's the case, then what are you to do when a piece of leaven is discovered in the lump? Allow allow me to give you one more example from the Old Testament. Numbers 16, 25 to 35. If you want, you go ahead and turn there, follow along with me. This is a longer section. Numbers 16, 25 to 35. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out uh, from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Friends, the reason why the church is commanded to separate from those who are engaged in known unrepentant sin, it's not only for the sake of the sinner's preservation, but for the sake of the church's preservation as well. Whenever the church knowingly permits sin in their midst, And I think in particular when they knowingly allow those engaged in unrepentant sin to gather around the table and tear from the body of Christ along with them and so profane His sacrifice in His presence, they participate in that sin with them. And at that point, it's no longer the sinner that needs to worry. It's the church, for they are participants in His sin with Him. To quote the great Charles Spurgeon, fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. Remember, Paul is rebuking the church in this passage. He's telling them they're arrogant, that they ought to be mourning. He's threatening to come with a rod and discipline them, not the man. Why? It's because in instances like this, silence is complicity. By refusing to correct this sin, they become partners with this man. And so when the earth opens up to swallow this man, it isn't just going to get him, but everyone who's standing at his tent along with him. It's going to swallow the church. And this is the part of the sermon I hate because I'm out of time. And I feel like we're just now getting started. Hopefully I've done it. Uh, Hopefully you probably have some questions now that you didn't have when we got started today. Uh, And if so, let me tell you, I feel you. I'm right there with you. Now, this is what I was talking about last week. I thought I understood this passage, and then the more I got into it, the more I realized that this is much, much, um, there's much, much more going on here than what I realized. 
And the implications of what Paul is saying here, they are many and they're challenging. But I think once you wrestle through those questions, they're also very enlightening. If you remember, I've entitled our series in 1 Corinthians, Christ in the World, because I think that's what this letter deals with more than anything else. It explains how the church maintains its mission in the midst of a world corrupted by sin. As we get into that subject, there are all kinds of questions that emerge about who we are to fellowship with and how. And, and listen here, this passage helps answer a lot of those questions. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to double back around to what Paul is saying here. And I'm going to try to answer, hopefully, some of the questions that are coming to your mind here this morning. In the meantime, though, we still have one more section to go before we'll have a full picture of what Paul is presenting us with here. And I think we probably need to let Paul finish his thought and give us the complete picture before we start trying to hammer out the details. Context is clearly going to matter in all this. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to finish this passage next week with the second action that Paul prescribes here in response to sin in the body of Christ. And then the week after that, we're going to spend one more week hammering out all the details, all the implications of this concept together. There's really a lot to apply here, but in the meantime, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to close with this thought. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And at the very least, we should probably walk away from this passage realizing that we should not profane this table with our sin. Now again, I've been careful to note that this is known unrepentant sin we're dealing with here. I don't think God holds a body accountable for sins they don't know about. So I don't mean to imply that anyone in here is necessarily doing the body harm if they come to the table with unrepentant sin. And again, I'm not trying to say that anyone is profaning the table if they merely struggle with sin, right? It's unrepentant sin we're talking about here. But even with all these caveats attached, at the very least, you should probably understand that if you come to this table with known unrepentant sin, then you are, in the words of Paul, acting arrogantly, and you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So as we gather around the table this morning, I would just urge that if you're coming to this table with any known sin, now is the time to repent. Let's pray.